This morning, we are beginning a brand new study. And I know for some of you, this is about a year and a half overdue. (laughs) For those of you who weren't fans of Judges, um, we're back to the New Testament. And so today, as you can see, we're in 1 Thessalonians. Though you may want to go there, quite frankly, we're not going to be in that text today. You can mark that spot, and I'd encourage you to go ahead and start reading um, 1 Thessalonians. Very short, uh, not a whole lot of ground to cover there, so we ought to be able to get that done in a year. But what I want to do this morning is try and bring some introduction, try and bring some background, so that we're sort of pulled in to this setting. What's going on during this time period? Who's the writer? Why is he writing this letter? Who's he writing to? What's the culture? What's the climate like? What's the atmosphere going on in this city where the Apostle Paul is writing to encourage and instruct? So this is sort of where I want us to begin. And whenever you do a book study, that's where you should start. And so we want to look at some of these things today. Let's see if I can find... Ha-ha! Here's my clicker. Let's see if this thing will work today. Oh, yes. There we go. Oh, yeah. Look at that. We even got a laser beam. So if any of you fall asleep, I, I'm liable to burn something in the back of your eyelids. All right. I like this. I need to get back to this. All right. Well, let's take a look at some of the uh, background information, if you would. One of the things that I'm excited about this study, and as I've already begun uh, in the past week or so to do some preparing, I, I never realized this before, and, and going through, you know, as you do in Bible college, the various books and the study, I don't recall this. And of course, you know how God will work in your life at different seasons and impress things upon your heart and mind and soul at a different point. But one of the things that's really neat is this is very timely, this study in Thessalonians, I believe because of the emphasis that God has placed upon this church as of recent in, the, in regards to apologetics. And apologetics, you know, comes from 1 Peter 3.15, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. Why do you know this Bible's God's Word? Why do, you, why do you believe Christ really rose from the dead? And for those of you who have not been involved in our Wednesday night Bible study, uh, we actually, Lord willing, will conclude this week. We've been going through the case for Christ. But pick up the book. You can order the book, The Case for Christ, and it's just a real in-depth as to why you can believe that this book that we call the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, is truly God's Word. It gives you more evidence, even beyond the Scriptures, as to why Christ is who He claimed to be. And so I'd encourage you to check that out. But it's not too late. Come this Wednesday if you can. Uh, we're going to close out strong, Lord willing, with this uh, final session on Wednesday. And I think you'll be really encouraged and blessed. Had a great group this past week. Appreciate all of you that were there. But one of the things that struck me as I'm preparing for this is this book, the background information especially, that we're going to talk about today, will strengthen your faith. There's some really cool stuff that we're going to see. At least I thought it was pretty cool. That was, you know, like, wow, man, this is good. This is right. This is true. Check this out. First off, Thessalonica, you kind of see where it's located. Um, 
here's the AGNC, and this is important, its location, for the simple fact that um, there's a road, and I'll show you here on this next map here in just a second, but kind of get an idea of, the, of, of where the land is. By the way, this is a modern picture, and um, this is modern-day Greece. Uh, you'll find it in that uh, province, in that area. Um, but Thessalonians, great book when it comes to info to confirm the inerrancy of Scripture. Interesting thing, it was named the city Thessalonica. Anybody know who it was named after? We can do a little interactive. It's okay, it's not Wednesday night, but let's break from the norm. By the way, when we come to church, it's not to get preached at necessarily, though sometimes we need that. It's to grow, right? It's to grow. And sometimes the best growth is when we discuss and interact. So I'm going to open it up a little bit this morning. Anybody know where this name, Thessalonica, the city, who it's named after? Okay. Anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? His stepsister. Now, that really wasn't why somebody said, hey, I'm going to name this after Alexander the Great's stepsister. It was actually uh, a king of the t- at the time. He, he decided, you know, when he took over this place and, and kind of set up establishment, he wanted to name it after his wife, who just happened to be Alexander the Great's stepsister. So, anyway, a little interesting thought there. It's also on a famous uh, trade route. This is why Thessalonica was such an important place for Paul to go to. Notice this right here. This is a um, a very important roadway. The Roman roadway here, this was used to carry much of the trade, much of the things of the land from the east to the west. And so it was a very, very popular route. You know, the Romans were famous for their roads. Well, this was a very important roadway. It's called the Via Ignatia. And so here's the AGNC. Here's, you see, Thessalonica. So this roadway came right through Thessalonica. So just imagine, imagine you, you live in Thessalonica. How hopping this place is. I mean, you know, this is a, this is a hub center. This is where all those travelers east to west are coming through. The roadway comes right into the city. And so, on any given day, this place is hopping because people have ported and they've brought their ships in here and, they, and they've docked and they've all come into the town. Then there's the roadway. And so, I mean, this is, this is a happening place. And it's interesting if you do a little study, Paul oftentimes targeted cities just like that. But doesn't that make sense? Hey, when you're fishing, fishermen, where do you go? You go where the fish are. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's going to where the people are. In fact, this was one of the most populated cities in this time. At the time, it was over 200,000 people in this town. Now, we may not think that's a big number today, but that's a big number. And so, very important as we go through this to kind of get an idea of where the city is, what's going on. So it's on this famous trade route uh, during the Roman rule via Ignatia. It's near a port. 
Now, you've got to realize, when the Romans took over, they set up two types of government. And as you study the New Testament, as you study through the Scriptures, you'll pick up on this in Paul's writings and Luke's writings. Sometimes you'll read that it's referred to as a, a proconsul or a king when speaking to the rulers the rulers of the city, the rulers of that area. You see, the the Romans set up a a sufficient government. They basically had two types. They had provinces. One was a senatorial province. The other was an imperial province. Now think about it. Logically, you understand the difference. The different names for leaders. The senator, the, the senatorial province, would have a proconsul. And the imperial would have a king. Example, King Herod. But we're going to learn in this study today, in this area, it was a senatorial at this time of the Roman rule. And they had a proconsul. You think, well, why is this important? Well, we'll get to that. But it is important. Very important. So, what else do we know? One of the things we'll find in our study today and I've alluded to a little bit already, is that Paul and Luke name in their writings specific titles and names in provinces. And it's important because, historically speaking, they get it right 100% of the time. Now you say, well, duh, yeah. But you've got to realize... The unbelieving world, the skeptic and the scoffer, they question this book. They question whether or not it's historically accurate. And so when we find titles of leaders, city locations, various things that are testified of in the writings of Luke or Paul, and historians make these discoveries that line up with Scripture, it gives credence to what we already know is true, but it brings that to the forefront. And and I want you to know that, Christian, because look, again, this book is not just a book of faith. It's the most historical, accurate book in all existence. And we need not shy away from that conversation. Yes, it's a book of faith in that it strengthens your faith, it's the Word of God, it's living, it's breathing. But sometimes, especially in the day in which we live, God desires to use the natural first to engage in conversation to bring them to the spiritual. So, again, um, some of the things that we'll discover as we go through this study. The church founded in Thessalonica took place during Paul's second missionary journey. And we're going to look at that in just a minute, how that, how that actually began. He was probably uh, released from uh, jail in, in Philippi. He's left from Philippi and he's, he's traveling on and this is be his second journey carrying the gospel into different places. So he decides Thessalonica is where he needs to go. Now, uh, again, you can kind of get an idea. Here's Philippi. You see that? And so he travels over here to Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica was kind of referred to as, let's just say it's, it's LaGrange. 
You say, wait a minute, LaGrange didn't happen. Yes, you're very true. Um, I'm sorry, not LaGrange, Berea. Berea. Berea is like LaGrange. It's the town out of the way. Um, you know, not many people purpose to go to Berea. I love LaGrange, but not many people purpose to come to LaGrange. So I want you to think about that, uh, uh, Berea, because in a little while when we look in the text, Berea has an important play in this unfolding uh, of, of the Thessalonians as well. So you see the relation here, how close it is. But Paul travels from Philippi to Thessalonica. Well, let's take a look at what happened uh, in this story. Everybody turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in front of you. Acts chapter 17. Because this is Paul's second missionary journey. He arrives and he comes under heavy persecution. Paul's not traveling along. It's Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus. And they're going to be so hated in Thessalonica that they're going to be ran out of town to the town of LaGrange. They're going to go to the town out of the way. They're going to end up going to Berea because of the great persecution in Goldsboro. All right. Let's take a look in Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying this, Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the whole, have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who, conduct, who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Okay, um, and I know some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor, you just said he came from Philippi. He did, 
But the scriptures start off that he came from this way. When he left Philippi out of jail, uh, he retreated back to his own before he went on his second journey. And when he went on his second journey, he went by sea. He arrives later up at this end. He comes down through Apollonus and Philippus, easy for me to say, and arrives into Thessalonica. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But here's what happens. I want us to, to kind of, again, stay in the story. What happens? Paul arrives in Thessalonica, and the Scriptures say he did what he always did. The first thing he did was he went to where the synagogue was. Now, why did Paul do that? Why did Paul, as his, was his custom, by the way, this was his custom. Every time he went to a new city, this is what he did. Why did he do that? Preach to the fellow Jewish brethren, sure. Now, interesting thing about Thessalonica, that we'll find out soon, the church is going to be predominantly made up of Gentiles. But he always started with the Jews. Part of the reason, and some of you may have experienced this in your own witnessing, it's a lot easier to talk with somebody who has a little foundation a little religious background, if you will, than somebody who's completely foreign. So, Paul goes to the synagogue. It says for three Sundays, three Saturdays really, but anyway, he preached for three weeks. Notice the scripture, 17.1. Look on over, he arrives was at a synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica. Verse 2, Then Paul, as his custom, went into them and for three Sabbaths. I want you to underline these words. Underline reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Circle explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. You see what Paul's doing? Apologetics. I mean, this, this is a pretty interesting word. He reasoned. Paul reasoned. You know, we serve a God who's not unreasonable. There's a lot of people out there who say, well, if there's this God, you know, he's just this tyrant and blah, blah. No, God is a God of reason. He says, come, let us reason together. One of the techniques that Paul used, if we can call it that, was he reasoned with people. Now, in this case, he's in the synagogues. They already hold to the scrolls. They already hold to the Jewish customs. They already know the Old Testament. They know the law, right? They know the prophets. So Paul's going in there and saying, look, let me tell you something. You know what Isaiah 53 says? That's Jesus. You know what Psalm 22 says? That's Jesus. And if you look in the New Testament, this isn't just Paul's technique. This is a technique used throughout. Think about the uh, Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. What's he, what's he reading? What scrolls is he reading? Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah. And he goes, what about, wait a minute, what about when Jesus is walking after His resurrection on the road to Emmaus, 
those disciples, what does Jesus do? He reasons with them from the Old Testament Scriptures. And what they're pointing out time and time again, when you see them being a witness, when they're being a witness for Christ, they are using the Old Testament. And they're trying to reason with these people because, again, our faith is not an unreasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. He's saying, you know what the Old Testament says here? Jesus fulfilled that. You know what the prophet says there? Jesus fulfilled that. You see, we need to reason with people, church, when it comes to the Scriptures. We need to be able to say, hey, did you know this? And this is one of the things we're learning on Wednesday nights. It is great when you take a look at some of the, not only internal evidence, but the external evidence that's been discovered as well in this world that points to Christ being who He claimed to be, God incarnate. And we have to be able to take that kind of information and reason with people because it's not an unreasonable faith. And this is what Paul does. So here's Paul in, in, in Thessalonica. He's arrived in this hubbub city and, and he's gone straight to the synagogue and, and begins to reason with them, showing them evidence, explaining that the Christ must suffer. Why did I say Isaiah 53? You see, we get an insight here. I don't know for certain that he looked at, he showed them Isaiah, and of course you know they, they weren't chapter 53, verse whatever. They didn't have that then. But how do I know he might have, well, I say, yeah. How, how can we logically conclude that he probably used in Isaiah 53 or that he might have used the Psalm 22? Look at the text. Verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer. I don't know exactly what text Paul's using in the synagogue, but I know he's using a text that talks about Christ's suffering. Scriptures tell us that. So what scriptures speak or reference the suffering? Well, hey, there's none greater than Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Or Psalm 22, the scene upon the cross. So I think this was probably, possibly, strongly, um, one of the texts he might have used. Isaiah 49 uh, another. So he uses these suffering passages... He demonstrated, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. So he probably would have alluded also to some resurrection passages. This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Messianic passages were probably cited as well. He is the fulfillment. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. Some of your words say some believed. This word persuade is the Greek word patheo, means to persuade, to induce one by words to believe. Did you get that? To induce one by words to believe, to have confidence. You're going to try and win somebody to Christ? Yeah, that's great. Your lifestyle better show it, but you better use your words. And it's okay, it's okay to try and persuade someone by presenting evidence. 
Now be careful, because you've heard the saying, and it is true, if you, you, know, you might can talk somebody into something, but that means they can be talked out of it. We're not talking about a faith of intellect. But I am speaking to a saving faith. And we want to present this evidence. We want to share this evidence. We want to try and persuade people. By the way, I mean, quite, quite frankly, if you knew someone was getting ready to step into a house that was going to collapse on them, wouldn't you try to persuade them not to go there? And so Paul in the synagogue is doing this in Thessalonica. Notice what happened though, verse 5. Some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and, and not a few of the leading and a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So some of these Jews become jealous. Why would they become jealous? (laughs) Paul's just let out a bunch of uh, folks from from their synagogue. Some of them were probably a little ticked about that. They were. In fact, they were so upset, they go into the marketplace and they get some evil men, get a bunch of mobsters, get everybody in an uproar. And so the whole you know, place is, is out of whack. Now they're going to converge on Jason's house. And Jason is, is obviously uh, one of these new believers. So they all show up this angry mob at Jason's house. The whole city's in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too! Don't overlook this. These men who have upset the world have come here also. Even the enemies, we talked about this Wednesday night, even the enemies of God are testifying to the power of God. Even the enemies are saying, these people that are turning the world upside down, they're here now causing trouble. So what are they telling you? They're telling you that the world's being transformed and changed. That's a a testimony to the power of God, even from the enemy. That's interesting. Don't just brush over that and miss that. It's the same thing we talked about on Wednesday night. When, When Jesus' body's not in the tomb, they tried to bribe the guards and say, look, we're going to pay you some money, just keep your mouth shut. All right. If anybody asks, you, you know, then the, the disciples came through in the middle of the night and stole the body away. All right. Stick to that story. You'll be all right. So what are they testifying to? They're testifying to the fact that the grave's empty. Even the enemies of God are testifying that the grave is empty. That's solid evidence. That's good evidence. Don't miss it. So, what happens? 
they're saying that, uh, well, notice verse 6 and 7. There's something else here that's, that's interesting too. Um, you'll find that they, they said, they brought the, uh, the rulers of the city crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. What accusation do the enemies make? They make the same accusation that was made against Jesus Christ. Remember? How could they get the Romans to crucify Jesus? Ooh, ooh, I got it, I got it. Well, hey, if he, you know, if there's a threat to the government, another king, oh, the Romans will respond to that. And here's the same type of accusation. They're saying there's another king other than Caesar, King Jesus. And so they rail that accusation. Now, who are these people that they brought them to? Some of your uh, books refer to it as the city leaders. Let me give you some info. This is kind of interesting. The city authorities. These are referred to as politarchs. Now, politarchs is a Greek word that is nowhere in Greek literature. And in fact, this is why so many liberals and skoptics and, and scoffers for years said, Ha! Luke is wrong. That's see, I told you, you cannot trust this book. Luke is wrong. There's no such thing as government officials uh, Politarchs. It's not this word. This word doesn't even exist. And guess what? For centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries, that was a tough one to answer. But guess what happened in 1962? 1962. There was a discovery made in an archaeological dig. And there was an inscription found in Thessaloniki, which is modern day Thessalonica. Huh. You mean the same city is still around today? Absolutely. Which, by the way, that's one of the reasons it makes it awful hard to not have a whole lot of new discoveries because the city's growing up on the city. Not a lot of excavation going on. You understand what I'm saying? But in the midst of construction, they unearthed something. 1962, they found an inscription in Thessaloniki dating from somewhere between 30 and 140 A.D. that bears the word politars, city rulers. And since then, there's been many other discoveries as well that verify this term, this Greek word, on inscriptions, on, uh, in fact, the roadway coming in, they've, they found a discovery of the archway where this word would also have been inscribed. Proving Luke is a good historian. That's evidence, folks. That's good evidence. That's archaeological discovery. That's not something you make up. That's not something you can... And what did it do? It once again reiterated what had already been recorded for ages. So, anyways, continuing on. Here's Jason, apparently a a man named, a a Hellenized name for Joshua or Jesus, uh, has become the host of Paul and his companions. 
possible that he hosted the new form church in, in Thessalonica. Some of these believers who would come out, these women and these men who were saved out of the synagogue, probably began a little church uh, meeting there at his house. They don't find Paul there. They don't find uh, Timothy, Silvanus, um, but they drag out Jason. Uh, they bring him to the Politarchs, the city officials, and they begin to make their accusations. Now, notice what happens here during this skirmish. He's been arrested. He's drugged down to the city officials. And Jason makes a pledge. Some of your Bibles speak of uh, making security. He makes a pledge. He received a pledge. The Greek word is hakanos. It means the sufficient. It was probably a bond given to the authorities by Jason and his friends. And most likely what happened here was this. They couldn't find really any evidence to convict these guys because what's the accusation? There's this king other than Caesar. So they finally said, look, all right, we'll let you go. Most likely, and I'm going to be dogmatic on this, but most likely they agreed. Here's the thing. These guys are not allowed back in this city. You understand? You can go. But I do not want those, that Paul, that Timothy, those guys are not allowed back in this city. There was some type of law, some type of bond. They were set free. But in that agreement, I think that they probably were told they're not allowed. Where do I get that from? Well, look in uh, first, um, uh, first Thessalonians 2. Just hold your spot there in Acts. Look over in First Thessalonians in verse 18. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul wanted to come back. And in fact, you're going to find out, after they got... This angry mob here in, in the first time they're in Thessalonica, in Thessalonica preaching and they get ran out of town and they go to Berea. From Berea, they go to Athens. And then from Athens, uh, they kind of split up. Paul sends Timothy back to Thessal- Thessalonica. Paul goes to Corinth and Silvanus ends up going, I think, back to Philippi. Um, but anyway, so this is where Paul's writing... 1 Thessalonians, he's in Corinth. And he's wanting to go back there. He wants to go back and see them. He couldn't, but he sends Timothy. So maybe Timothy wasn't on the wanted list, if you will, but perhaps Paul was. Something was hindering it. Satan was behind this, and no doubt Satan did not want the gospel brought into that area. And and again, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, but it makes sense based upon what I read that possibly there's some kind of decree that says Paul's not allowed in this town. Whatever it was, he was hindered. He was not allowed to go back. And Jason was released. And his friends were also released. Notice verse 10 and 11 of Acts. Back over in Acts. And I'm going to try and wrap this up quickly. But I, I, want you to, I want you to really get this background information so that we, as we begin to move into this study, you understand what's happened, what's preceding it, so it'll make sense. Verse 10 and 11 says this, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. 
when they arrived, they went into the synagogues of the Jews. Okay, so here's what's happened. Paul's been in town three weeks. He's preaching. city's in an uproar. They're wanting to kill him. So Jason and them get drugged into, down to the city officials. Paul and Timothy, they slip them out at night. They send them on over to the town out of the way, to Berea. And when they get to Berea, notice what they do. They get to Berea. Verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So here they go again, back into the synagogue. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Did you get that? They're they're more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. In that, here's the difference, in that they received the word with all readiness. They were eager about it. They liked this Paul coming and teaching and explaining the Scriptures. You know where it says in Isaiah 53? Let me tell you, that's a Jesus. You remember when he hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why is I forsaken? That's Jesus. When he begins to say all these, these guys, they're eager. They received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. Church, you've heard say here, I said it many times. I'm glad to have my, my guest visitor, one of my former students, Rachel, with me this morning. Rachel can vouch for this. I've had her since seventh grade. I've always said, search the Scriptures. Don't take what I'm telling you to be true. Look into it. And guess what? If you find out I'm wrong, you better, as a good brother or sister in Christ, come and sit down and let's reason together from the Scriptures. But the Bereans were noble-minded. They searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether or not this is true. And as they did, they realized, this Jesus, He is the Messiah. He is a fulfillment from the Old Testament. And they believed. They trusted, they believed. And so they continue on. They they. They searched the Scriptures daily, they believed, and and then, just kind of in summation, Acts 17 and 18, it goes on and tells us that from Thessalonica, uh, the, the Thessalonians were so angry when they heard that Paul and Timothy had gone to Berea. Guess what they did? They weren't content enough that, oh, they messed up our town. We're going to send some people over to Berea. And that's exactly what they did. The Thessalonians sent some people all the way over to Berea to run them out of town there. That's how much they hated Paul. That's how much they hated the gospel. And so the uh, Scriptures go on and tell us, and again, I encourage you to read it. Uh, For time's sake, I won't go through it. But they hated them so much, they they went to Berea, started trouble from there. Paul uh, went to Athens. You remember the Mars Hill encounter, the philosophers? leaving Timothy and Silvanus in Berea. They later joined Paul in Athens. And Timothy went, uh, and Timothy was sent to Thessalonica, where Silvanus uh, went to Philippi. And then Paul went to Corinth and stayed there alone and wrote to Thessalonica after hearing a good report from Timothy. That's what precedes the writing of the letter, the epistle. 
the book of Thessalonica, the book of Thessalonians. So as you're reading that, think about it. Think about all that's happened that's brought about the writing of this book and that Paul is sitting in Corinth penning this letter, desiring to go there, but can't. That Timothy has gone and has reported back a good report. And if you'll keep that as a background as you go through this study, I believe it will unfold in a clear way for you and and, and you'll find a, a better appetite, if you will, for the things of God. Look, guys, I realize some of you come in here and from the moment you sit down, you're ready to go home. Can I encourage you? Be more noble-minded. If that, if that hurt what I just said, it should. It really should. I mean, this is the bread of life. This is the living Word of God. I don't know if anybody heard the voice of truth this morning, but I tell you, it convicted me. That's kind of weird. Sometimes I hear myself preach and then I get convicted. But anyway, (laughs) praise God, right? We become dull of seeing and dull of hearing. I want to be like a Berean. I want to be noble-minded. I want to have a a hunger. I want to see the Word of God. I want to hear this stuff expounded. I want to hear it taught that it goes, man, that's good stuff. I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You can stay content being where you are for 30 years, but you know what? Praise God, I don't want to be. I hope and pray by God's grace and God's mercy and by the instruction of His Word that I'm a lot more mature 20 years from now than I am right now in my faith. But shouldn't that be the case for all of us? Let's be like the Bereans. Noble and search the Scriptures daily and see if this is true. And if it is true, what does that mean to my life? Acts 18, if you continue on there, it brings more apologetic evidence. It speaks of Galileo. Let me just read you this phrase. Acts 18.12 says this. It says... When Gallio was proconsul, remember he's the leader. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Why is that important? Well, guess what? That's historical documentation of a leader. This tells us that Galileo was proconsul while Paul was in Corinth. Galileo is mentioned on an inscription that was discovered around 1900 in Delphi, Greece. Again, historical documentation outside of the Bible that verifies the Bible. This man's name was found upon an inscription. The inscription is from the Emperor Claudius and addresses, quote, Lucius Junius Gallio, my friend, and the pro-council of Achaia. Luke's description in Acts 18 is proven historically accurate. This fact puts the date of the writing of 1 Thessalonians at 50 or 51 AD. That's only about 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. Why is that important? 
20 years ago. If I told you something happened in this world of significant, that turned this world upside down, that happened 20 years ago, if it's not true, every one of you would rise up and dispute it. But if it was true, you'd verify it. You see, the evidence outside of Scripture is overwhelming. And it points to the Scriptures as authority, historical accuracy. This makes 1 Thessalonians one of Paul's earliest epistles. Some have disputed maybe his first. I think probably Galatians might have been his first. But this is, again, historical confirmation. This book is correct. And if this book is correct, there's some application to us. And here's what it is. True followers, true followers of Christ are to be dedicated, faithful, no matter the opposition. You're going to find this as we go through the study of 1 Thessalonians. Persecution is going to be there. Faithfulness. We should be like the Bereans, noble-minded, searching the Scriptures daily. We can trust the reliability of God's Word. Therefore, we can trust Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Thank You for just the background information today. I... I know for some this is uh, maybe not their cup of tea, if you will. But Lord, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that as we study the Scriptures, and that's what we should do, we should study. Study to show ourselves approved. Rightly dividing the word of truth. That way we're not ashamed. uh, Lord, quite frankly, we live in a day where many Christians, they don't know what they believe or why they believe it, just because they've gone to church and and their pastor told them. Well, heaven forbid that that be community Baptists. Lord, let us be students. Let us be noble-minded. Let us be like the Bereans and search the Scriptures daily. Let us uh, uh, sharpen one another as, as iron sharpens iron. Father, help us to be hungry and thirsty for the truth of Your Word. And Father, help us to also see the example of men like Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, Jason, and others that were named in this text even today. That we will be faithful in the midst of persecution. That we will stand with boldness, yet humility, to serve. To not be afraid of what others may do, what others may think but to only be concerned of what you might say. Father, help us to be pleasing in your sight through obedience, through faithfulness to your word, that we might grow and mature in our walk, that we can become stronger Christians, stronger representation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning if there's anyone here that's not right with you. They love their sin more than they love their Savior. Show them. 
Show us, Lord. Show us that if there's anything that separates us, some sin in our life that we would confess it and forsake it. Lord, have your will and your way in our hearts and our lives that we might surrender to know your grace and your goodness and your forgiveness. And we'll thank you. And so, Father, we ask that you go with us now. May we meditate on these truths throughout this week. And may we search the Scriptures daily that we might know you that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.